You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Amen. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it to Romans chapter 12. If we haven't met, that's my fault. I'm sorry. My name is Carl, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Today, uh, we are jumping out of the James series. We're going to pick that back up next week. Lord willing, Robbie will close that off. If you remember, though, a few weeks ago, Pastor Nathan opened up God's Word and talked about our God time. And this is what we believe one of the essential principles to uh, the life of those who are following Jesus Christ. And here at Hope, we have kind of what we call them five Gs, and God time is one of them. And so today, uh, we're going to look at another one of those, and that is how we ought to use our time, how we ought to spend our time. And we call this around here, give time. Now, Warren Wearsby, he wrote this, what we believe helps us determine how we behave. And we must translate our learning into living and show by our daily lives that we trust God's word. So in today's passage that we're going to be in and what we're going to learn from God's word, it really has to do with relational theology, which leads to how we use our time. God's going to instruct us from his word on what we should know about him and then how we should interact with God. But that interaction with God then will lead to a different kind of interaction with God's people. Because if we are in an increasingly right relationship with God, it will create a different relationship with God's people. It just has to. There there has to be a translation that goes on from it can't just be in our head and in our heart towards God, but not towards God's people. It has to spill out in the way that we then use our time. Now, God has a perfect plan for you. Amen? Amen. So good that God has a perfect plan for us, filled with love and fulfillment and blessing that comes from knowing him. However, often we think that God's perfect plan doesn't have a lot to do with worship, service, and obedience. If we're honest... We're all about the blessings and not so much about the giving. Now, there's a problem with that because that's not what God's word says. In fact, God's word shows us over and over again that the key to spiritual victory and true happiness and peace and joy is not in trying to get what we can out of God, but in giving all that we can to God. Now, this is the opposite of what the world says. The world says you should be out for you and try and get everything that you can have to make you happy and you pleased so that you can have peace. The problem with that is you're at the middle of that. And if you know you like I know me, that's not going to go good. Because what am I going to do that's going to fix my situation? Now, the heart of this passage today, I want you to just to know this. The heart of this passage is not about how to get along better in a religious community. The heart of this passage would be to found our theology on truth that we know about God that would then relate to a different interacting with God's people. Obedience needs to come from belief. If you try to just obey God without believing, all you're going to do is act, and it will likely be bitter. And that's not going to be pleasing to the Lord at all. So, as I say to our students all the time, we need to let God's word inform what we believe and how we behave. So let's look at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 to start. Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Now, if you look there at the beginning of verse one, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and just want to encourage you, if there's a little number two beside the word brothers there, there's a footnote that's pointing us to this is brothers and sisters. This is not just to men, but this is to brothers and sisters. Now, Paul is making this urgent urging, this appeal. Now, notice, because it's good that you see this here, by the mercies of God. Did you see that? Maybe underline that or highlight that, because that is the foundation for everything else that he's about to say. It has to do with the mercy of God. So as good scholars, we have to look at the grammar here. And so he says, I, therefore, because of something that's already happened, I'm making this plea because of the mercies of God. The therefore refers to everything that's come before that in Romans. So the first 11 chapters, let's go through those now. No, I'm just kidding. Everything that he's been doing all since Romans 1 all the way up to Romans 11, he's been unpacking the mercies of God. And we can't go through it all right now, but I want to put a couple verses on the screen just to remind you of the mercies of God. Romans 3.20, by the work of the law, no human being will be justified. Works cannot save us. They cannot. The chasm is too big. The sin is too great. We cannot fix the problem on our own. And then he goes on to talk about the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So then he gets to Romans 5 and he drops another therefore. And he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus comes and he does for us what we could not do for ourselves and justifies us. Mercy of God poured out for us so that then, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now, do you notice these therefores? There's these therefores Paul's building as he goes through this book. We're getting to our therefore again in a minute. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because the penalty of sin has been paid for. This is the outworking of the mercy of God. It's important that we just have a right understanding of what mercy is. So if you like to write down definitions, you can write this down. It is the withholding of deserved wrath. And in our case, we're not talking about a mercy fight between two kids on the playground. We're talking about the withholding of the deserved wrath of God justly for all our sin, for all our wrongdoing, for all our rebellion towards him. God made a way for the wrath to be removed from us. That's mercy. He made a way for somebody else to take the punishment, the penalty for our sin. That's mercy. To withhold it from us and to give it to someone else. That's someone Jesus that if we believe in him, we can be forgiven of our sin and have hope and joy and peace because of the mercy of God. So the mercy of God then is the foundation for the rest of what Paul is about to say when it comes to our interaction and our relationship with God. And so he says this at the rest of verse one, because of the mercies of God, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So if you wanna write down some sermon points this morning, here's the first one. God's mercy leads me to holy worship. If I understand the mercy of God, it should increase my worship of God. Now, I'll be honest with you, at the end of verse one there, it says spiritual worship, and, and that's not really a phrase that we use very often, so you're kinda like, well, what is this spiritual worship? Well, this means to be genuine and from the heart. This is not some sort of ceremonial worship. It's not just going to church to check the box, it's going to church to meet with your savior. And so we're to do this, this spiritual, this genuine, heartfelt worship to, you see there in the verse, it says to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. That's a wild image, isn't it? We're supposed to be a living sacrifice to God. That word living, it means a perpetual, it has this idea of an ongoing, lasting, never neglected worship. The problem is 
that as living sacrifices, we get distracted and we fail to give God the perpetual, continuous worship and honor that he deserves. And as living sacrifices, we crawl off the altar. We crawl off the altar and we go after worshiping all sorts of other things. Now, this is where the mercy and the understanding, the, the preventing separation from God, that he would withhold wrath for us, becomes so important in our lives. We have to come back to this mercy if we're going to understand how we are to live for him and if it's going to motivate us to live for him. And so if we understand all that he has done for us, when we see there in the middle, it says that we should offer holy and acceptable worship, we're like, yeah, I get it. You love me so much. You did so much so that I could be saved, so that I could have hope, so that I could have forgiveness. Of course you don't want me walking in sin anymore. Of course you don't want me disobeying you anymore. Of course you want me to live righteously for you. Of course you want moral purity and uprightness. And that's this holy worship that we are to then give to God. So if God has saved your inner person, your soul, you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and he has your heart, then what Paul is saying here is then, that he hasn't just saved your heart for some future moment. He has saved all of you, and you're supposed to live your life now as a living sacrifice, everything. It's not just for the future. It's for now and for always. God wants all of you all the time. That's the title of today's message. God wants all of you all the time. The problem is, and if you're like me, sometimes we find ourselves giving God our leftovers. You ever do this? Where you're like, well, you know what? I don't know if I really have time to read my Bible today. Maybe I'll read it tomorrow. Are we really giving God our first and our best in that? Well, you know what? If I feel like I need it, then I'll pray. <laughs> I would just confess that I've thought that before. It's so foolish. It's so dumb. If I need God's help, I might talk to him. No, I need God's help all the time. What are we thinking, acting like that? But then we also do this. We're like, well, if I have time... Maybe I'll serve at the church. Sadly, these things, whether it's pursuing God in his word or prayer or in service and worship or however it is, we often come with wrong motives. We're not motivated by the mercy of God. We come with wrong hearts and maybe even willingly sin-stained lives. We have sin in our lives that we're not really willing to work on. We want the saving work of Jesus, but... When it comes to the sanctifying, scrubbing away of sin, we're like, eh, let's not scrub on that one just yet. And this is where we have to come back to the mercy of God and let it motivate us. Friends, we all need help with this. God wants, first and foremost, our faithful obedience to him in worship. And that comes as we understand the mercy of God. So, question for you this morning. Does God's mercy motivate you? Is the gospel the single greatest driving force in your life? You're like, that seems really huge. It is. This is why Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice. Now, I'm not saying that, that providing for your family or loving your kids or even taking care of yourself shouldn't be important to you but they should at best be a distant second to the motivation for all that happens in our lives coming from the gospel and the mercy of God. But how many times do we go through our day and we haven't even thought about the mercy of God? We haven't even thought that, that sin's penalty has been withheld from us because of Jesus Christ. 
The more we reflect on that, the more it changes how we act. No wonder we wander off into sin. No wonder we feel discouraged and weak spiritually sometimes, discontent and lacking joy, because we're not living how God wants us to. No wonder God feels far from us sometimes, because we've crawled off the altar. We've crawled off the altar and we've gone after, after the altar of self. So what does it take to, to, to do this, to live a life of holy worship? Well, I would put two things before you just as we start this morning. The first one is repentance. It's a coming to the Lord and saying, God, I, I, I want you to reveal to me the areas in my life that I'm not prioritizing you, the sin that I'm willingly continuing in, and God, would you help me to turn from it? to not go that way into sin anymore, but to leave it behind. You died on the cross, you rose from the dead so that I could have hope, so that I could be forgiven. And you sent your son Jesus so I don't have to take the consequences for that. You have withheld your wrath from me. Please God, help me turn from that living. So repentance, but then a fresh pursuit of the Lord. Going after him with a desire to have an increased holiness in our lives. Are, are we going after holiness? Like, can you look back at your week this week and think that there are decisions that you made based off of a desire to grow in holiness? I'm not gonna do that because that's going into sin. I'm gonna consciously repent or turn from or not even go down that road and just pursue holiness. Now, I don't mean to stand up here and sound like I got this all figured out. But this is what collectively should be happening the more and more we understand the mercy of God in our lives, this idea of leaving sin and pursuing the Lord. And it comes up again in the next verse. Look in verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul here, he continues on that this is what God wants. He wants this changing. He wants this, this turning in us. He wants us, and he wants us all the time, but he doesn't want us how we used to be. He saved us from that. He wants us to be different. He wants us to live for him. And you'll notice there that the point of all of this is to live in accordance with his will. And so you can write this down, point number two. God's mercy also leads me to his will. God's mercy leads me to living out and discerning out what the will of God is in our lives. Now, this comes by letting the mercy of God wash over us. And I'm going to say the mercy of God so many times that hopefully this afternoon you'll be like, what was he talking about? The mercy of God? Was that what it was? Yes, it's the mercy of God. The mercy of God that he died and he rose and he justified and he saved us from sin that we could be forgiven. The problem as followers of Jesus Christ, we still live in this broken, sin-cursed, dark, evil world. And what happens is we get pulled along into the things of the world. And so Paul, he refers to that here as this conforming to the world. This idea of conforming to the world is, has the idea of this is, we are increasingly similar to the world. That's a problem. That's a problem. We need to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, which means we are not becoming more like the world, but we are becoming more like Jesus. If this world controls your thinking, you're a conformer. If God controls your thinking, you're a transformer. And I don't mean like a robot alien. I mean like a Romans 12 follower of Jesus Christ no longer continuing in sin by any means, Romans 6 says, because we're pursuing the Lord. And we want the Lord to change us and we want to, to live what he, so this is how you get to a place. So it says that we're supposed to seek after doing his will, right? This is how you get to a place where you can say, not my will, but your will be done. 
Because when you understand the mercy of God and the love of God and the kindness of God, you're like, yeah, man, your plan, not mine. I want what you want, not what I want. I think we can all agree that sometimes it can be hard to do something. If someone asks you to do something and you don't know why, that can be difficult, right? Some of you are like, no, I will gladly follow any leadership over me. You're crazy, okay? We all struggle with this. Little kids struggle with this the most. I have a bunch of them at my house, and I don't know how many times I hear the word why, right? Why? Listen, I can't explain to you oral hygiene. It's past your bedtime. Just brush your teeth, right? And we get to this one, and they've got to just trust the one who's giving the direction to say, okay, they know better than me. Who in the universe knows better than us? Then God Almighty, who has exercised mercy to save us. But then sometimes we sit back and we're like, well, why do you want me to do that, Lord? It doesn't matter. This is how much he's loved us, that he sent his son Jesus, that we can have hope, that we can have a future that's different. Here's some verses about that. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. We don't belong to this world anymore. So what do we do? Colossians 3.2, we set our mind on things above. We go after honoring the Lord, pursuing him in everything. Galatians 1.4, he gave himself for our sin to deliver us from this present age. Because of all that, it should cause us to just be like, yeah, I want to do what you want me to do, God. I know it's going to be difficult. I know it's different from the world. I know it's going to be hard sometimes. And I know it's not even going to be comfortable all the time, but it's what you want. Now, how awesome is it that not only does God love us, but he doesn't just say, do it. And we're like, why? And he's like, oh, don't worry about that. Like he gives us his word to reveal himself to us. He reveals over and over again to us his character. And so this is why if you look in the middle of this verse, in verse two, I love this little phrase, the renewal of your mind. This has to be an ongoing intentional thing. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, it says, Paul writes again, he says to renew your mind day by day. This can't be something that you just do when you come to 500 Great Lakes Boulevard. This has to do something, be something that we do every day. I heard Pastor Jim Cimbala preaching on this recently, this whole idea of renewing your mind day by day. And here are some of the things that he said, and I'm just going to channel my inner Jim Cimbala for a minute for you, okay? The first thing he says is that you got to think Jesus. Every morning when you wake up, when your eyes open, before your feet hit the ground, before you pull the covers off, think Jesus. When you're driving, think Jesus. When you're getting ready for a meal, think Jesus. When you're about to make a phone call or an email, think Jesus. And I don't just mean think the name Jesus, where you're like, Jesus. No, I mean, think about the work of Jesus, what he has done for you, that he willingly laid down his life for you. It's gonna change how you go through your day the more you think about Jesus and his love for you and the mercy of God washes over you. Think Jesus, listen to Jesus. How often are we kind of like, oh man, I wish it was just like more clear what God would want me to do. Like he's given us a book with everything we need for life and godliness in it. The problem is that so often we get so distracted by the world that we're like, ah, you know what, I'll just figure it out. No, that's, that's a bad plan. We need to renew our mind, transform our hearts. Think Jesus, listen to Jesus, talk to Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Do you pray? Do you pray regularly and often throughout the day? I don't mean just like one time in the morning and then like at meals maybe and then maybe before bed. I mean like frequently, often, Paul says, all the time throughout the day. We should find ourselves talking to God so much that if someone could just like listen in on your head, 
they'd be like, is this person crazy? They got like a whole other conversation going on inside their head right now. Yeah, that's not a bad thing. Us talking to Jesus and then praising Jesus. How good were those songs that we sang this morning? Right, reminding us of the truth and the love of Jesus, his kindness, that we can go to him, that we can look to him, that we can listen to him. We need to let the mercy of God wash over us. So all of this is the relational theology that we have with God because of the mercy of God. And as we understand this, what he has done for us, it should wash over us in such a way then that it changes the way that we interact with everyone around us. And so that's what Paul transitions to here in the next verse. And he says this, verse three, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. So again, what Paul is getting at here now is the the foundation to how we are to relate to each other in the body of Christ. This is the relationship with God's people that comes from the relationship with God. So if we understand the mercy of God, well, now he wants us to understand this grace of God. Did you notice that? There's this transition from verses one and two in the mercy of God as the foundation to now we see in verse three, for by the grace of God, he's now about to say everything. And so this first one here coming from verse three, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, leads us to this point. God's grace leads me to humble evaluation. God's grace should lead me to a humble evaluation. As we understand what God has done for us, it should change the way that we think about ourselves. Jesus Christ has given us grace. Now we gotta define grace because we defined mercy, but grace is getting what we don't deserve. And there is no greater gift of grace than the, giveness, the giving and the grace of the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ. And so the more that we understand the received grace that we get through Jesus, it should only cause a humble evaluation in our lives, an increasingly humble evaluation in our lives, an increasing understanding that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Because on our own, we're just stuck in sin. But Jesus... He has made a way. He has given us hope. Now, this isn't to say that we aren't of value. I don't want to confuse you in that in any way. As image bearers of the creator, we are of great value. But the problem comes when we care more about self. We don't care about service and the encouragement of others and the building up of the body of Christ because God cares about all of those things. And so God is calling to us again to have sober judgment. Did you see that line there? Sober judgment in the verse which suggests that on our own, we are out of touch with how we really should understand ourselves. Now, to do all of this, it also says, having a measure of, with the measure of faith that God has assigned to us. Well, what's that all about? That's kind of interesting, this measure of faith. There's, there's levels, there's discerning, yeah. And the more we understand the grace of God, the more we understand more accurately who we are before God. And so the more we understand the goodness of the gift, the better we recognize how insufficient, how weak, and how desperate we really are. Imagine if we did physically what we do spiritually, though. Like a little kid saying to mom and dad, you know, like I'm talking like a little kid. 
Hey, let me help put the dishes away. I can put the cups on the top shelf. No, you can't. Uh, You need a huge ladder to get up there. Okay, well, let me, Dad, lift up the couch, Father, dearest, with all of my strength, so you may vacuum underneath it. That's insane. The kid's going to break all the cups, and they're never going to get the couch off the ground. But this is what we do spiritually so often. We think of ourselves as these spiritual giants, strong and mighty, when in reality we are desperately in need of God's help desperately in need of God's help. And what Paul is doing here, he is wanting to unpack and to remind us we are growing, we are not stuck, and God is equipping us, and he wants to do a work in us. One pastor wrote this, nothing causes more damage in a local church other than these two groups of people, believers who overrate themselves and try to perform a ministry they cannot do, or the opposite, When people undervalue themselves and do little to nothing, both sides are wrong. So the question about our relational theology begins to build now. We love God. We love Jesus. We're so thankful for all he's done. But the question is, is it translating into our lives? Are we offering to God ourselves as a living sacrifice? Are we not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to? Are we actively being part of this body that we belong to in Jesus Christ? Now, some of you, this is information that you already know, and I hope it's just encouraging to you. You are living out what it says in uh, 2 Timothy 2.20 about cleansing yourself from what is dishonorable. You are seeking to be set apart, holy, useful, ready to the master of the house. Praise the Lord for that. Continue to be in that place, waiting for the time when the Lord will raise you up and he will use you in different ways. Don't force yourself forward. Let the Lord do that. But sadly, many followers of Jesus Christ are not participating in the local body. For some, it's because they just think it's below them. And if that's you, you probably would never say that out loud. But in reality, you're not sure you really want to go serve at the church or serve in the body of Christ. Or maybe it's a priorities thing, and you just won't give the time to it. And that should cause us to remind ourselves of the grace of God, and through that filter of the finished work of Jesus, begin to view how we ought to honor the Lord. Maybe some of you are just, you're just nervous. You lack experience in how you should serve the Lord. Honestly, what Paul is just calling for us from all of us here is just a humble self-evaluation. For all of us, for me included, I am not more than what God says I am. But I'm also not less than what God says I am. You are not more than what God says you are, but you are also not less than what God says you are. And so we have to discern how God wants to use us in there. How does he want to work in our lives and use us? And Paul goes on to unpack that now in what this should look like in our lives. And here's where it gets a little bit more practical for the rest of our time. Look at verse four with me. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in in, in propitiation, I knew I was going to say that. (laughs) If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, 
The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So, so here, Paul really begins to kind of let the rubber hit the road on how we ought to, well, I wrote this down, helpfully cooperate in the body of Christ. And so the grace of God, because remember, we've had a foundation built on the mercy of God in verse one, and now in verse three, he switches to the grace of God. This is our last point this morning. God's grace should lead me to helpful cooperation in the body of Christ. God has not saved us to be passive bystanders. He has saved us to be part of the work in his church. We are one body with many members And we don't all have the same parts. Did you notice that there in verse four? This means that when we aren't functioning as the Lord has called us to, the body isn't working properly. When we fail to use the gifts that God has given us to build the body and to exalt Christ and to participate in the church, we are causing the body to be out of balance and to limp and struggle along. Now verse five says, that we are individually members of the body. So sister, we belong to the body together. Brothers and sisters in the room, we are all in this together. And so when one of us isn't doing what God has called us to do, it affects the body of Christ. Each member has been given different gifts. Now, here in Romans 12, Paul only outlines like seven of them. You can go read in 1 Corinthians 12 later, and he outlines more, and there's other places in Scripture where they're outlined. So we're just going to look at these, and, and forgive me, but we're only going to be brief about this this morning, okay, on how long we can spend on these. But God has given us these gifts to participate in the body. These are tools for the building of the kingdom. They're not weapons to use against each other, and they're definitely not toys to mess around with. But God has given these things. So let's look at them real quickly. Prophecy there in verse six. Now, in the New Testament, this is not about a, a new word from God, but this is about interpreting divine truth to God's people to help them in everyday life. It's kind of what I'm trying to do right now. Hopefully you're picking up on some of that, okay? But this is just one gift. That's just one of the things. It's wrong for us to elevate one gift over any other gift. God uses them all to build up the kingdom. So he says this in verse seven, if service in serving. Thank you, Paul, that's very vague. What do you mean by if service in serving? As I read this a few times this week, I was like, okay, there's gotta be more here. So I went and did a little bit of study. That word is referring to the operation of deacons. Now it's not referring to the office of deacons, this position that some people in our church have, but it is the operation, the functioning, the coming alongside and the practical helping in different ways, not in an official capacity, but in a loving, caring capacity. And I gotta tell you, as soon as I began to read that, it started me thinking about my late grandpa. He was a servant to the core. This guy was a blue collar guy all his life. He never wanted any recognition. He hated public speaking but he had a huge heart for the kingdom. He had a huge heart for the ministry of the church. And if that meant going to fix the boiler at his church in the middle of the night so it would be ready, the church would be warm for the next morning, he would go and do that gladly to serve the kingdom. The church needs people like that. We are wrong to think of that as not important. The church needs people who serve. Our church has amazing people who serve. You'll never know. You may never see their faces. I'm about to reference a few of them right now, and they might not like me for that, but I don't care. (laughs) 
our church used to be at a different location. And behind that building, we had a high school. And we used to do this drop-in lunch for these kids that could come over and we would share the gospel with them and then we would give them food. And we had an army of these older saints who would come in and serve the Lord so faithfully, just quietly come in, boil hot dogs, warm lasagna, whatever it was. I think of the Jones, these two ladies, wonderful ladies. I think of Stephanie and June who have gone home to be with Jesus now. The Lord needs servants. He uses them. He uses us. And when we fail to use the gifting that the Lord has given to us, well, we're causing the body to limp along. Now, that's just the second of these gifts that he's talked about here. He goes on, and we'll go through these other ones a little more quickly, but he says there in verse 7, the gift of teaching. Now, this is similar to prophecy, but this has to do with connecting personally the truth of God's word into people's lives. Have you ever met someone who has this gift where they can just come alongside you and you're sharing, and all of a sudden they've got God's word open in front of you, and they're like pointing to something specifically in God's word? And you're like, man, that's exactly what my heart needed right now. How encouraging is that? If you have the gift of exhortation, it says there, we are to use this if you exhort in exhortation. Maybe your Bible says encouraging. We all know who these people are who have the gift of exhortation and encouraging, right? These are the people who you like, you really hope you bump into on a Sunday. I've seen some of your faces in the room already. And the joy of the Lord is boiling up inside you. Then I'm like, I just want to get close to this person for a minute so it'll just like splash over on me. That's, we, if you have that, the joy of the Lord just welling up in your life, don't hold it in. Just boil it over on people in a safe way, of course. Verse 8, it goes on and says, to those who contribute, to contribute in generosity. One commentator wrote that this is the willful giving up of self, treasure, talents, and time. And you might have more of one of these, and God is calling you to specifically contribute that. So if you have more time, talent, or treasure than maybe others, this might be the gift that the Lord has given you to use for his kingdom. He goes on, and and Paul writes about those who lead, are to lead with zeal. They're to lead with zeal. This is about leading or or being out front and pushing and pointing uh, people to the vision of God for his church. Now, biblical leadership is different from the world's ambition to position kind of leadership. Biblical leadership looks like service, but I gotta ask you, if God has gifted you with some abilities to be a leader, and you're a leader outside of this building, that's great, but are you missing an opportunity to use that gifting that the Lord has given you to build up his body? The last one there that Paul says at the end of verse eight, he says, those who do acts of mercy to do this cheerfully. And this is specifically about the practical and physical needs of others and how we can come alongside and how we can use our gifts to do so in loving them and we're to do it cheerfully and that can be difficult sometimes but this is what the Lord has called to us now this is just seven this is the list of seven God has given all his people different gifts to be used in his kingdom Now, they're not to be used out of guilt. They're not to be used out of coercion or compulsion, but out of hearts of thankfulness because of the mercy and the grace of God. So I'm not about to put a list up on the screen 
of ways that we need people to serve in our church. And I'm not going to tell you to go check the website under the service tab afterwards to find out how you can be involved in our church. <laughs> because honestly, if you're not doing it because of the mercy and the grace of God, I'd rather just wait for the Lord to bring the right person along. But I don't want you to miss that opportunity that the Lord may be putting in front of you. And you might be thinking, well, I don't even know, you know how I could serve or what. Just start serving. And let other brothers and sisters in Christ around you begin to affirm things in your life. There are, sure, there are spiritual gifts, inventories, and things like that online you can take. And I would encourage you to go do that as well. But just get your feet in the game. Just be part of it. We need to cooperate in the body. I was thinking about this whole idea of proper cooperation. And maybe I was hungry when I wrote this, but I was thinking about, you know when you go to a restaurant and the server like hates their job? They don't want to be there at all. There is no patience. There is no kindness. They barely got you the menus. You're not sure you're ever going to get water. And you were short one set of silverware. You're probably just going to use your hands at this point, right? That person, they do not like their job at all. And it makes the whole experience really poor. Even if the food's good, you leave and you're like, eh, I don't know if I'm going back there. And sadly, what we also have in our world right now is a lack of servers in restaurants. And so it makes it hard for these restaurants to even function at all. Listen, all of that transfers over to the body of Christ. We have people in this room, or even right now, but in our church, who God has gifted us in specific ways, and we are unwilling to use the gifting that God has given. We are holding back our service, or we're coming with wrong hearts, or we're not even willing to show up. This passage destroys the idea that you could be committed to Christ and be inactive in service. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to participate in the body, to surrender your time and your energy and your gifts to the Lord. True worshipers cannot be independent of service. They've got to go together. And it's honestly, it's tragic. It's tragic that many Christians will withhold their spiritual gifts that God has given to them. I remember a pastor saying to me years ago, if God has gifted you and equipped you in a certain way, and you don't use that for him, when you stand before him someday, and he says, how have you used what I entrusted to you? What answer do you think is going to be a good excuse for why you didn't use that gift. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in love, I tell you this morning, there is no good answer. And so I, like Paul, appeal to you because of the mercy and the grace of God, the withholding of the wrath of God by the work of Jesus, the love of Christ poured out, and the grace and the hope of forgiveness, and that we will be with God someday to present your body as a living sacrifice to give your time and your energy to the advancing and the furthering of the kingdom, to function helpfully and cooperatively in the body of Christ that he has put you in. Let the mercy and the grace of God wash over you and point you to him. Our relationship with God determines our relationship with God's people. And so if the whole idea of serving and being part of a body where you are dependent on and where you are used is a scary thing for you or you are unwilling to be part of that right now, 
well, then you've got to go back to the first half of this message. And you've got to let the mercy and the grace of God wash over you. Because that needs to be the motivator in our lives. God has not saved part of us for some future moment. God has saved all of us by faith. And God wants all of us all the time. So we need to give that to him. Today, as we wrap up our service, we have the opportunity to specifically remember the mercy and grace of God, that God has made a way for us to be saved. Jesus, he set this up for us. The night before he was crucified, the symbolic reminder of the sacrifice of his body and blood that were given for us. And so I'm going to invite the servers for communion to come forward at this time. The Bible tells us this is for followers of Jesus And so if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ right now, I want to encourage you just to let the elements pass by in a moment and just observe the faith of those around you. But listen, brothers and sisters who are in Christ, this is an opportunity for us to let the mercy and the grace of God wash over our hearts. This is an opportunity for us to reflect on the penalty that was paid and the hope that is granted through the work of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray, and you guys can Uh, serve the elements in just a second, all right? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your love and for your kindness towards us. God, we don't deserve it, but you have been so merciful in withholding from us the wrath that we deserve. And so, God, we thank you for bearing the wrath, Jesus, for taking the wrath that we deserve and giving us hope, hope of reconciliation, hope of forgiveness, undeserved grace of reconciliation. God, would your love, would your mercy, would it wash over us and be the driving factor in our life like nothing else, that we would worship you all the time, that we would honor you all the time for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.